13. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, that's two disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in uh, to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word for us tonight. Uh, I'd like for you to pray with me before we jump in. So um, let's pray and then we'll look at this together, right? Uh, Father, I pray um, that you would, in your kindness, um, send your Holy Spirit to teach us and to open up our eyes to see the things that we can't in and of ourselves and to unclog our ears to hear the kind of things that we we wouldn't uh, in and of ourselves. So would you do that? Would you be gracious to us now as we look at this together? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Conan O'Brien had his last kind of airing on NBC before he, you know, this is before he started his new show on TBS. Uh, he had sort of the last message that he sent um, to millions of people watching um, was not a joke. It was, he was being very serious. He knew this was like his last moment to kind of capitalize his message. And do you remember what it was? You can find this on YouTube, but here's what he said. All I ask is one thing, particularly of young people that watch, please do not be cynical. I hate cynicism. For the record, it's my least favorite quality and it doesn't lead anywhere. Cynicism. Why does Conan hate it? Four questions I want to ask tonight. That's not one of them. (laughs) And you can follow along in your, uh, your handout there. 
What is it? Where does it come from? Why must we change? And then how do we get the power to do it? Okay? What is cynicism? Where does it come from? Why do we have to change? And then how do we get the power to do it? Okay? So what is cynicism? What does Conan mean? Cynicism is basically this, just to kind of define our terms and make sure we're all on the same page. It is basically this, overly confident suspicion. It's looking through somebody, looking through what they are saying and basically unmasking it to get to what's really going on. You know, so somebody comes up and they sort of have this virtuous appearance But cynicism comes along and sort of unmasks it and deconstructs them and says, yeah, they appear very honest, very virtuous, very noble, but what's going on underneath is that they're really driven by greed or by lust or by selfishness or or whatever. And so it's, it's this approach to life that basically says people are phonies. Everybody has a hidden agenda. And you kind of can look through people with the aim of dismissing them. And it, and it doesn't have to be just people. I mean, you can kind of look through God, look through religion and dismiss that. Look through institutions, the government, marriage, dismiss that. L- let me give you kind of an example. So maybe this will put a little bit more uh, texture to it. Uh, you know, you, you walk up, somebody you know, comes up and pays you a compliment. And they say, hey, man, uh, nice pants. You really have um, a, a few seconds to decide whether or not you want to take them seriously or whether or not there's something else going on. Because you could say, um, oh, these old things? Well, thanks. And and, and then you run the risk of, what if they're like, dude, you thought I was serious? (laughs) Like, those are totally lame. Totes lame. You know? You know, you, you run the risk of like, okay, if I, do I take them seriously? You're, you're suspicious. You know, are, are, they, are they just complimenting me because they're trying to butter me up because they want something? It's like, what do they want from me? And so that, that's sort of the whole idea is, is deconstructing, being overly suspicious of everything, seeing through everything. But, you know, we can define it all day long, but, but cynicism really more or less has a feel to it. It's sort of embodied in a mood. And what I want to do is just show you from this passage how these two disciples kind of embody the feel of cynicism. So, okay, let's look at this passage. Here's kind of the situation for the story. Jesus has had this public ministry for three years, which climaxes in the city of Jerusalem. And because there are a lot of people that did not like Jesus, they um, executed him as a criminal. And then there were all of these rumors that were going around about three days later that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So that's the context where these two disciples are leaving sort of the commotion and the uproar of Jerusalem. And they're heading home and they're talking and they're processing all of this. And the resurrected Jesus joins them. But they they can't recognize him for whatever reason. And so Jesus kind of engages them and says, um, you know, hey, what's going on? What are y'all talking about? And then look at verse 17. Here's the key. They stop. And their faces are downcast. They're they're clearly disappointed with something. And then one of them gives this really jaded response. Look at the next verse, verse 18. It says, are you a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know these things that have happened here in these days? He's like, dude, there have been riots in the streets. Where have you been? I mean, he kind of gives this kind of sharp tone. And then they begin to explain that this guy, Jesus, was killed. And And look at their reaction to it in verse 21. It says, but we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Here's what they're saying. We really hoped that God was going to do something. And he didn't. 
And you know what? It's been three whole days since any of this happened and nothing has changed. They are clearly disappointed, clearly upset. And in fact, they tell the story that when these women came up and reported that Jesus has been raised from the dead, it says in verse 21 that they were amazed. And that word there means to literally be thrown off. They're they're skeptical and suspicious of this claim. They're they're like, man, y'all are crazy. So here's what I want you to see. These, These two guys sort of embody this feel. They are disappointed with God and with the world. And as a result, now they are very suspicious and skeptical of certain things. They don't feel like there's any hope in the world left, that, that you know, anything can change, anything can happen. Here's what I want you to see. This is you. And this is me. These two people who embody the feel of cynicism just mirror back to us who we are. If you don't believe me, let me try to prove it to you with a couple examples. How do you respond when a politician is running for office and, you know, he's kind of going through the the campaign and saying, hey, if I get elected, I promise I'm going to make it my number one priority to fix whatever, the education system, I'm going to fix homelessness or whatever. And everybody's thinking, okay, yeah, right. We've heard all of that before. You don't want that. You're not interested in that. You just want the cushy job and, you know, the the fancy office, right? I mean, we see through them. We're, We're too suspicious about these claims. Or for a lot of us, um, we're just cynical towards preachers. You know, you, get, you, go to a, you go to a church and you're like, man, that dude doesn't care about God. That dude doesn't care about me. He just wants that offering plate to go around a few more times, right? Maybe even some of you right now being suspicious and cynical of me here at RUF is like, that dude doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about God. He just wants his group to get big so he can feel good about himself. I mean, that's what cynicism does is it sort of looks through everybody to find these hidden motives, these hidden agendas so that you can write them off. Here's a few other ways that we do this. Maybe it's not just with people. Maybe it's more with um, ideas or uh, um, relationships as a whole. And so for some of you, you are cynical towards dating relationships in general. You know, like you've got a friend who, who's uh, gotten together with this uh, girl or, you know, your girlfriend's gotten together with this guy and they're super excited about it. And you're thinking, man, that's just corny. That is cheesy. You just deconstruct romance to cheesiness, and, and you either want nothing to do with it because it's just stupid to you, or you just, you, know, you just say, man, wait till that infatuation kind of calms down and y'all really get to know each other, and then you're in for a reality check, right? You sort of look through it all. Or here's a cynical comment that I hear you saying all the time and I hear myself saying all the time, which I thought about it this week. is like, man, that sounds really cynical. It's this. What does that even mean? You know, somebody says something and you're like, what does that mean? And it's not like this healthy curiosity, like, yeah, can you like, tell me a little bit more about what you mean? It's, it's the, no, it's this sharp response that says, uh, you don't make any sense and you're an idiot. I mean, that's, that's kind of what that comment says. But cynicism, it also bleeds into our spiritual life. And you've got to see this as well, because what cynicism does is it says, I don't want to engage my heart with anything that feels. I, I want to stay distant and safe. And so for a lot of you, um, either at RUF or in church, is that you just sort of endure the music part of it to get to like the preaching part. It's like, I don't want to do, I don't want to engage with the emotional, feely stuff. Let's get to the real stuff, the cognitive stuff. That's the real stuff that really counts. And so there's this disconnect where I don't want to engage, I don't want to feel, I just want to think. Uh, or, here's sort of how cynicism bleeds in, is that we wonder, 
does God even do anything in the world anymore? Is he even involved in the world? And so, you know, we pray. And let's say for whatever reason, you know, a certain example comes where we prayed for something and it actually happened. Like our prayers kind of were answered. And then cynicism bleeds in and you think, I think that would have just happened anyway. You know? This is what cynicism is. It's sort of this distant, jaded, uh, calculating suspicion of everything where we don't trust people, we don't trust God, we don't trust institutions. We just sort of look through everything and then write them all off from our safe, observant vantage point. That is what cynicism is. But of course, the next question is, where does this come from? How do do we get to this point where we become so cynical? So here's the second thing. Where does it come from? In a big picture sense, kind of in a general way, I mean, we just live in a cynical culture. This is just the cultural air that we breathe is cynicism. I mean, we as a culture don't trust the government. We don't trust the church. We don't trust uh, the education system. You know, we look through things and say, that, you know, these institutions are not out for my interests. They're just out to benefit those at the top of the, the ladder for those particular institutions, right? And so we just sort of look through everything, write it all off. But it's also, I think, because we've been raised in a, in a culture of consumerism, From the moment we were born, we have been bombarded with advertisements from companies promising things to us that they have no intention of ever fulfilling. And so, for example, you know, you're watching the TV and you're like, okay, really? If I buy a bag of Doritos, I'm going to be driving a cool car and I'm going to be like the funny guy in the office. Everyone's going to be giving me high fives. It's like, no. It's like, this is stupid. And so you're just, you're trained from the very beginning to be suspicious about the promises and the claims that people make to you. It's also the shows that we watch, the things that we laugh at. You know, for my generation, it was Seinfeld, like the most cynical show ever. Friends. For your generation, it's Family Guy, it's The Simpsons, Tosh.0, you know, (laughs) I've watched it. Um, But even though we live in a cynical culture, I I want to try to show you that this gets a lot more personal. This gets a lot more intimate. So I just want to show you three quick sources of where cynicism comes from kind of in our day-to-day lives. You can follow along in your handout. There are sub-points. Here's the first, is just circumstantial failure, meaning uh, it's the result of failed hopes. You hoped something would happen and it didn't. I mean, this is the situation with these disciples, right? If you look again in verse 20 and 21, they had hoped God would do something. They they had hoped that Jesus was the one that was going to liberate Israel politically from their oppressors. And all of their hopes and dreams died up there on a cross. So now they are disappointed. And when you experience circumstantial failure like this, uh, that you hoped something would happen and it didn't, or you, you hoped God would fix something and he didn't, this builds up scar tissue. And that scar tissue begins to morph into this cynical outlook where you begin to realize, okay, I can't trust people anymore. I can't trust God anymore. And, and I'm not going to be stupid to be tricked into feeling something as stupid as hope. There's this great um, song on Ben Folds' uh, previous record, which he's coming here, I just saw, um, called Picture Window. Ben Folds is a musician, in case you don't know who that is. Uh, and it's this song about this couple in a hospital 
room, and it's it's sort of the, the, the gravity of somebody being sick in a hospital bed and they're not getting better. Let me just quote you the chorus. Pardon the language, but it's Ben Folds. He says this, You know what hope is? Hope is a bastard. Hope is a liar, a cheat, and a tease. Hope comes near you, kick its backside. It's got no place in days like these. You know exactly what that feels like. Where you've been in a dating relationship, and let's just say the guy of the relationship promised you certain things that he didn't fulfill. He said you were the one. You know, I, that he said, I want to marry you. I, you know, we're going to be in this relationship together. And now uh, the thing is broken apart and everything is you know, in disarray. And you're thinking, man, we even talked about the names of our children. And I believed him. And now it's all a joke. It's all gone. And so you think, okay, I'm, I'm not going to believe people anymore. I'm not going to believe people when they say that. Or you just sort of resign yourself to hating the opposite sex for the rest of your life. Or just sort of saying... I'm done with relationships altogether. I can't do it anymore. Some of you have been single your whole life and and have um, never received the affection from the person that you had interest in. And some of you really think that the wisest solution to this is just to say, I'm not going to hope for that anymore and just shut down your heart completely. Or, you know, um, you put your faith in God. You say, okay, I'm going to do this Christian thing. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to start going to church. And things are going well until uh, a family member passes away or until your parents get divorced or something terrible happens. And you go, God, I I I thought if I trusted you, stuff like this wasn't going to happen. And you blew it. And I don't know if I can trust you anymore. And this is what cynicism does. It, it, it functions kind of like the Dementors do in Harry Potter. You know the Dementors? Those like creepy, scaly things in the, in the hood. And what they do, their whole purpose is that they suck hope and peace and happiness. And so when you experience circumstantial failure, cynicism comes along and sucks out your hope. And all that is left is now this sort of disinterested, disengaged posture towards life. Here's the second source for this. It's it's similar to the first, only it's in the micro scale. And this is a personal failure. Uh, And what I mean by this is, um, well, there's this great book uh, called Perfecting Ourselves to Death. And, and, And the whole premise behind this book is that we live in a culture that puts enormous pressure on you to be perfect. You have to have the perfect grades. You have to have the perfect body. You've got to be in the perfect relationship. And as a result, now we feel all this pressure to feel cool or to to be cool and smart and put together and perfect. Uh, There's one problem with that, though. We're not perfect. And we know it. And so what happens is because we feel this pressure to be perfect, there becomes this disconnect in our lives. And our whole lives become this PR campaign to make ourselves look good. And so what that, what that looks like is that we now drop names uh, so that people will be impressed with who we know. Or we just let it slip that we made an A on that test. Or you know, we just flat out put it on Facebook. <laughs> Or um, we smile a whole lot and just try to be enthusiastic about everything. Hey, I'm put together. Nothing can shake me. 
Or what some of us do is that we, we make sure that in every conversation we slip in the words God or Jesus so that the other person knows that we are very spiritually mature. And, and what we, the more that we do this, this disconnect happens where the public me is cool and smart and spiritual and funny and put together, and the private me is anxious and guilty and angry and worried. And the more that you live with this disconnect and you feel like a phony yourself, cynicism comes in and projects that phoniness onto everybody else and says everybody's a fake too. We're all just pretending. We're all just smiling. It's all just a big charade. Cynicism comes out of that sort of personal failure, that personal disconnect. Here's the last one. Spiritual failure. And what I mean by this is that for a lot of people in this room, there, there's a disconnect between what we feel and with what we say we believe. Meaning, for a lot of us, we say, you know, hey, I'm a Christian, I love God, I'm doing the thing, and, and you are. I'm not, I don't want to be cynical about that, you really are. But then what happens is um, that your heart, you know, this is normal and natural, but that your heart gets out of tune with God. But life still goes on and you still do the things. And so you're doing the Christian things, only it feels empty. Uh, it feels like you're just sort of going through the rote actions. You're saying things. You know, you're talking about Jesus, but you don't feel connected to him. And so it just feels more, you just feel more and more like a phony. You just feel more and more like a fake. And in fact, the more that you do this and other people are talking about Jesus, they seem like fakes too, right? And the way that this plays out with us is that, you know, we say... Uh, I'll pray for you. And then, you know, in some, in some situations, we actually do go and pray for them. But then when we do, we're like, you know, does God even answer prayers? Does God even hear prayers? Or am I just talking to myself? Am I just talking to the wall here? Or, or you know, you're, you're singing and worship and you feel engaged and sometimes you even close your eyes. And then the rest of the week, you just feel numb. And you know, okay, I'm not as energized by God as I appeared to be at church or at the campus ministry meeting or whatever. And the more that disconnect happens, where you f- say you believe one thing, but then you feel a totally different way, you feel like a fake, and then you project that fakiness onto everybody else, and that's what cynicism is. That's where it comes from. Our circumstantial failure, our personal failure, and our spiritual failure. Why do we have to change? That's the next question. Why must we change? I promise I'll be shorter on this one. Two reasons. The first reason is because cynicism is destructive. It is absolutely destructive. Because the problem with it is that you retreat from life and cocoon yourself in sort of the safe and distant bunker. But what you do is you cut yourself off from all that is good and beautiful and right in the world. And so it functions kind of like a shield where you protect yourself from disappointment, yes, but you also prevent yourself from accessing beauty and goodness. There's this image that C.S. Lewis gives in one of his books, which is just, he's talking about something else, but it applies perfectly here. So let let me just read this. Here's what he says. He's talking about love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, 
dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. That's why cynicism is destructive, is because you grow desensitized to beauty. And you lose your humanity when you do that. Here's the second reason why we must change from our cynicism, is that it is deceptive, meaning it is a lie. It does not tell the truth about the way that the world really is. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I I was leading a Bible study um, for for a campus ministry for a a different college, and um, there was like the classic cynic who came that night. And, and, And he loved... Bible study, he loved Christianity because he loved how authentic and honest uh, we at least were with our messiness and our struggles. And so um, I asked this, you know, we're looking at this passage and I asked like, the question to the group, um, you know, hey, what does this passage say about uh, human nature? And he kind of quickly jumped in and aggressively asserted, it, it says that we're uh, sinners and we're corrupted, uh, disgusting, nothing but uh, filthy worms, perverted worms. And um, we're, you know, it's kind of like, oh, um, uh, perverted worms? Really? Um, but, you know, it's like while the Bible and Christianity does not give us rose-colored glasses about the state of the world and about the state of our own evil, this guy was relishing in it. He loved how negative the Bible was about people. But here's where cynicism and Christianity part ways. Because people are made in God's image, meaning that they are full of integrity and they are full of value and dignity. And just because we have fallen into sin, that does mean that the image is now um, damaged. But we are all still made in God's image, which means simultaneously as people in God's image and yet sinners, we are embodying dignity and depravity at the same time. Both of these things coexist. Uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who's this old Christian dude, um, said, that Christ, said that people are, are glorious ruins. Meaning, you know, kind of picture like the old majestic monuments of like ancient Rome, like the Colosseum, beautiful majestic monuments that are now crumbling and falling apart. And he says, that's us. We are majestic, beautiful, made in God's image, and yet still crumbling and falling apart. And here's what cynicism says. It says, dignity doesn't exist, it's only depravity. It looks through reality and says there is no goodness, it's all badness. Meaning, cynicism always assumes that people's charity is really just their selfishness. People's enthusiasm about God is really just them being fake. It's always looking through everything and only seeing depravity and not seeing dignity. So that's why we must change. It's because cynicism is destructive and it is deceptive. It will ruin you and destroy your humanity as well as it lies to you about the way that the world really is. So, okay, last question. How do we change? For a room full of cynics, myself included, how do we change? How do we get the power to change? Well, look at this. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. You know what Jesus does with these cynics? Look at verse 27. He does a Bible study with them. It's when it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is just shorthand for saying the Bible. 
He's doing, a, he's doing a Bible study with them. He's walking through the Bible with them. And what I want you to see is that he's not giving them a theology lesson. He's not giving them moral guidelines. He wants them to see who is at the center of the big story of the Bible. Look again at verse 27. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The, the story of the Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is, the whole story is about him. But what is that story essentially about in regards to him? What is the story of Jesus about? At the center of it is the cross. I mean, that is why um, Jesus is talking about his suffering in verse 26. That is why as this passage continues and he sits down and has dinner with these guys and he breaks the bread, that's when it kind of clicks to these two guys who they're looking at because he's visually demonstrating this bread is being broken and they finally, it finally clicks. Somebody had to have been broken for me and that was him. And you know what the result is? Once they begin to kind of grasp the cross and grasp the gospel, here's the result in their lives. Inflamed wonder. Look at um, 32, verse 32. It says, They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he uh, talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? I mean, they're saying our hearts were captivated. Our imagination was engaged for the first time. And look at what these guys do. It says in verse 33, they, they leave everything at once. They like leave the food on the table and they like bolt to Jerusalem to go tell people about it. Like this is for real. This is true. Jesus is legit. They are captured with wonder. You know, there, there's this great biography of C.S. Lewis by this guy named Alan Jacobs. And he's, at one point in this uh, biography, this is called The Narnian, by the way, he's talking about why C.S. Lewis wrote children's stories. You know, he's this kind of elite academic type, and he's writing children's stories. And uh, here's what he says. I think it's so insightful. He says, Those who will never be fooled can never be delighted, because without self-forgetfulness, there can be no delight. Here's what he means by that. If you're cynical and you just see through everything, that means that you think that you know everything. And therefore, nothing can surprise you. Nothing can throw you off. And therefore, nothing can delight you. You will, you will never be caught up in wonder. And that's what cynicism does. It sort of deconstructs uh, your, your wonder. And so he says, this is why C.S. Lewis wrote these children's stories, so that he would never lose this childlike sense of wonder. The solution... To cynicism is wonder by looking at the cross, by not looking through it, by letting your gaze kind of settle upon it. Because you know what the cross assumes? It assumes that God is looking through you, that he can see through you as easily as looking through glass, and he knows what is there. He knows the hidden agendas. He knows the screwed up motivations. He knows the selfishness. He knows the greed. He knows the struggles. He knows it all. But he is not cynical because he doesn't dismiss you. He does not write you off. What does he do? He sends his son to die in your place. When he looks through you, he sees, okay, something is wrong here. Something is not okay. It must be paid for. And he says, I'm not going to dismiss you and make you pay for it. I'm going to send my son so that he will pay for it for you. The cross, the gospel, is the only thing that will deconstruct your cynicism. Because God, who is the only one who sees through everything, himself is not a cynic. 
The gospel is this, that we are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. But we are also so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. And when you take the gospel in by faith, that is the thing that begins to melt the ice away from your heart, where you are now caught up with wonder at what he has done, knowing that he, he, he looks through you and doesn't cynically dismiss you, but actually graciously receives you. Now let me wrap up here. Your problem and my problem, ultimately, is that we are cynical toward God, toward Jesus. We don't trust him. We don't really believe that he is for us. And so let me just ask you some questions in closing here. Have you stopped praying to him because you feel like he has let you down or or he will let you down? Does the gospel sound like it's just too good to actually be true? Or have you experienced so much pain in your life where you feel like, I've got to give up on heaven, I've got to give up on hope in order to be a realist in the world? If that is you, and that is me, the invitation tonight is for you to not look through the cross, but to actually let your gaze settle upon it. And to let his goodness towards you melt away your cynicism towards him. So consider that an invitation. And let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to settle and to not look through the cross, but to settle there and to see the wonder and the glory of Jesus crucified for us, crucified for sinners, that you do not reject us, but you receive us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.